It was this moment, this pause, where I knew that what was gonna come out of his mouth next was gonna be devastating. And I just, I mean, I braced myself. And I, in my mind, I'm like, if I could just stay in this moment a little bit longer so I don't have to face what's coming next. This is my comeback story. This is my comeback story. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. We're back. Good morning. Very excited to be with you guys today. We are still looking at people's stories. And the purpose of this is, is to inspire and to reignite passion for what God is doing in the earth, and especially in the context of people who are addicted to drugs. We see all the data. According to Time Magazine, over 20 million drug addicts over the age of 12 years old. And with most statistics are showing that there is about a 20% success rate. Um, and, you know, when we, we look at all those numbers, and I can get in there of to, you know, why I think that, you know, there is... Um, so much failure and, and so much tragedy in the realm of drug addiction. Um, but we want to celebrate and highlight those who are coming out of it. And over the last few weeks that we have had some of my friends who have been on here, um, those that have over a decade clean um, to those who have less than a year clean and, and where they're at in the process, but to see God doing what only he can do and to make beauty from, from ashes and to just make something incredible out of, out of so much destruction and so much tragedy. Um, very excited to be here with John and Mallory Dawes this morning. And the focus, again, is, is going to be on their comeback story. But I want to look at it in the context of, of marriage. And, you know, so many people that are dealing with this and so many families who had all these dreams and all of these thoughts about what marriage was going to be like, and none of them thought that it was going to culminate into active addiction and that a season of their life that was going to have to be given to treatment and to recovery and all of those kind of things like that. But as I tell so many of the clients who end up there, like I realize that ending up in treatment wasn't on your top 10 list. You know, it's not like that you were thinking, you know, when you were in high school of, you know, I can't wait to, to graduate college. I can't wait to have an awesome family and an awesome job. And I can't wait to go and get my diploma from Good Landing Recovery. Like nobody ever thought that. But I will say this, in the same way that I look back in my time in basic training in the military, is that those were the greatest times of my life. However, I don't ever want to do it again. I don't ever want to go through that process again. And so what the invitation is, and really what we're going to be looking at today is, is that if you come in and do it right on the first time and don't circumvent the process, that God can do so much, and you don't have to go in and out of multiple treatment centers, but, you know, it's that that really that common denominator that I think is there is, is why the staggering statistics own so much failure in people attempting to get clean, is that it just really just comes down to pride. People don't want to follow the process. They think that they know better. Yep, you know what? That worked for Jimmy, but I don't. But for me, it's going to be different. I just need to get back to work. I just need to get back home and do what I'm supposed to do. And so, and so many of us are wired not to just stay in the process. We want to prematurely abort those processes and to go back into what we know is familiar, what we think that 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 matters more. And that's why, in my opinion, so many people fail again and again and again. Um, but today, we're not talking about failure. We are talking about success. I am here um, with John and Mallory, and we're going to start by hearing a little bit about John's story. Um, John will 
you know, give you the details, but I know that he was raised in a Christian home with three siblings um, who all love God. I mean, the atmosphere and the environment was perfect for him to come up and to spend his entire life dead center within the boundaries of, of God's will, but he took a detour. Um, and it, it caused a, a lot of hurt in, in his life and in his family's life, um, and he is going to, to tell his story. Yeah, thanks for having us, Andre. Like you said, uh, I was born into a Christian home. My dad's a uh, Baptist pastor, and my my mom's a uh, Sunday school teacher. Got two older brothers, both love the Lord, and a younger sister, also loving the Lord. Uh, and, you know, really, ch- my childhood was a think-leave-it-to-beaver, pretty picture-perfect, nothing nothing major happening until the, the teenage years, I guess around the time the, the internet came onto the scene, I, I got curious on that and got involved in, in pornography. And little did I know that was a, a, uh, a beast of a thing that, that I was going to face for most of my adult life. It was like walking into a, I, I describe it now as a, a prison of, of shame because I was taught from a young age, right from wrong. I knew, I knew what 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 to do. I I wanted to follow God, but but I I walked into that and and got stuck. So uh, I didn't really discover alcohol until my until the late teens, early twenties. Uh, started experimenting with that, and then walked down that path. Uh, later, kind of realized that. That the shame I was experiencing from, from pornography, and knowing that was wrong, I, I discovered that the the alcohol, and then as I started experimenting with drugs, would kind of help numb the shame. Um, so yeah, I I started drinking, and then not too long started experimenting with with pot, and that went to powders and pills, and then I discovered opiates. And that was that became my thing, definitely. So in the midst of all that, I I'm backing up a little bit. I I fell in love with music and started pursuing music as a career, and was able to turn it into a career. But all of the while, I uh, had this double life, uh, you know, uh, experimenting with drugs on the on the weekends keeping it hidden from my family, friends, my church buddies. I was still attending church. So, yeah, I'd, I'd built up this double life, and I got really good at, at keeping it hidden, keeping it buried. And uh, it really turned me into a, a master liar. Uh, this is not to brag at all, but I, I got really good at it. Um, so, yeah, I'm walking towards music as a career and seeing success and in the middle of that, I, uh, I met Mallory, and, and we got married. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm tearing up. Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, so in the middle of that, I uh, met Mallory, and we got married. And um, it was just crazy to think about now, looking back, like in the midst of, of me being as sick as I was at that point, and I'm still not like full blown, like every day using, but I was still sick. Like, like I said, locked in that, that prison of shame, um, believing lies about myself. I was, I guess I want to say, uh, 
God met me there and allowed me to meet such a a strong woman uh, of God. So yeah, I kept, I kept you know we we got married and uh, my music career kept taking off. We the band I was with uh, got signed to a, a label um, and we started opening for a a uh, Grammy award winning national act. So we're touring the country, uh, playing sold out arenas, opening for the Zac Brown band. Um, and so I, I, in one sense, had gotten to a level of where I, I wanted to be, and I was climbing that ladder of, of success in the music industry, and almost living for the moment of being on stage, like almost getting high off of the attention from the crowd and definitely getting my identity in being like there's John, the bass player in that band that, you know, is traveling the country. That's who I was. And so when I wasn't on stage or doing, doing things for the, for the band, I, I guess I would fill that time with, with drugs and alcohol. Um, so when John and I got married, you know, just like he said, I was walking into a really strong family. I come from a really strong family. Um, we were, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. I was a good kid in high school. I mean, you know, you get into your own different kinds of troubles or whatever, but nothing major. I stayed away from, you know, any kind of drugs and alcohol. I went to a small Christian college. I pursued an advanced degree. I mean, when I met John and looked at his family, everything looked, um, everything looked really good. I didn't have any kind of question marks. Um, he, he did tell me about a little bit of a history with drug use, but I didn't, I looked at it more as like a party phase. It was just like this blip, like everyone has like a moment in their youth that they wish they hadn't done some things. And so I, I really just looked at it like that. And I would have told you during these early years that we had a strong marriage. I mean, we, we went to church together. We started having kids. We struggled financially, just the reality of, you know, my husband being a musician. But other than that, I mean, we got along so well. We didn't have these, like, big explosive fights. There weren't, there weren't these big signs telling me that something was wrong. Yeah, so uh, everything was, for the most part, on the outside going good. I was, I was where I wanted to be, living the rock star life, but also, you know, married uh, kids, but still that double life was, was there. And uh, it was, it, you know, my usage was growing at that point. Definitely more opiates coming in, in into the scene. Then uh, we got a, the, the band I was with got a call that the label we were on was going under. And in like a five minute phone call, uh, everything changed. Uh, we were We were no longer a touring act. We, I was no longer uh, in a successful band, uh, I had nothing. That's when things started to get pretty dark. I lost who I was. It was a huge blow for, for both of us. I mean, we had this vision of what our life was going to be like. I had already, you know, kind of submitted to this idea of I'm going to travel with my husband and our kids are going to be homeschooled in a bus and we're going to have fun and it's going to be crazy, but we'll figure it out. And then literally a phone call and that was just all gone. It was, I mean, it was huge. It was devastating for sure. 
I then just started looking for, for work to pay the bills. It was, I, I exasperated my, my contacts in the industry and then was reaching out to friends, anyone I, that I could for like work. I was, I guess, since uh, searching for my purpose, like I just was void. I, I had no reason for, for doing anything because I just had no drive. I had no direction whatsoever. I eventually found a, a pest control job, that, but it was just not fulfilling. Um, and my my habit went from you know every couple of days doing a couple of pills here and there to full blown Roxaset, Roxies like every day. Um, and then I got offered heroin, and it was cheaper alternative. It's the same story you hear all the time with with opiate users. It's cheaper, so I I started using that. And that it just spun into a I couldn't not do it. It was it, it started to drive um, and take take over like completely. So at that point, we had a three year old and a nine month old and I could see John spiraling. Um, but like I said, I not having grown up with anyone in my family or, or friends that had any kind of drug use, I didn't have a context for it. There wasn't like. I saw, I saw signs that John was struggling, but I didn't have a category in my mind to place that into, well, this is clearly the sign of drug use. I saw depression and I saw hopelessness. And so I approached it from that angle. And um, I remember talking to John about seeing a counselor and trying to get him help on like the mental and spiritual side of it. And um, he agreed. And then the next day, something hit me with our finances. And um, I think it was just like the Lord's prompting for me to go and comb through bank statements. And we never had much for him to take from anyway, but he had a way of skimming off the top so I wouldn't notice. But going back through and all of a sudden seeing it add up, I mean, it was terrifying. So I confronted him one night and... Um, he confessed to at least part of it. <laughs> yeah, I I told her that I had been using pills and heroin uh, for the last couple of months. I downplayed the the reality of you know I had been using off and on for our entire relationship, and that was a huge mistake there. That that would uh, that would get me back out there using again eventually, but I was able to, uh, uh, I was able to detox, um, at home. I was under, you know, her supervision. She was watching the bank accounts. Uh, very few people knew, like close, close family, um, knew what was up with me and we're, we're keeping an eye, but because I downplayed it, they didn't realize it was such an issue. They didn't realize the problem was as big as it was. And I was able to white knuckle it for for a period, but in that in that season, I I was praying for direction and and I wanted the Lord to speak to me, and every time I did that, I got the loudest to tell the truth from Him every single time. That was just like on repeat in my head, tell her the whole story, and out of fear uh, of losing her and the kids, I. Uh, I I just kept saying no, kept saying no, and 
So I started drinking very heavily and eventually wound up on heroin again. So, right. So John detoxed at home. Um, you know, honestly, like I, I think I just didn't even know any better. Um, but I was just doing the best that I knew how to do, like with the resources that I had. Um, so John kept working. He, like he said, he white knuckled it. I was on alert for different signs, but it's hard. I mean, he knew exactly what to say to, to divert my attention to something else. And we would talk through things that were triggers for me, things that reminded me of the past when he had been using. Unfortunately, he was able to then use that to hide it even more because he would just avoid those specific things. And he found a ways to use outside of me knowing, outside of the house and I mean, I mean, he did. He just hit it so well. So I, I want to really just understand a little bit about, you know, from your perspective, that you guys are married. You, you know, realize that things aren't perfect. You have no real grid for, for drug addiction. And then you hear the word heroin. I mean, it, it's just not, you know, painkillers, alcohol, cocaine, maybe fits in there a little bit, but, but heroin is just like, that's not a word that just gets dropped off in any conversation. Um, I think in the world that, that you thought that you were living in. And I know that you used the word terrifying as you started to, to look at the bank accounts, but, but what are you really experiencing, you know, based on, I thought I was in this strong family. I've got a history of a strong family. Family's huge to us. You know, John's, his immediate family has this appearance of strength and then you hear what I think to a lot of people, you know, sounds like a death sentence. I mean, it was, it's devastating. I remember confronting him that night. We were in a, in our car parked outside of a Starbucks. And when it starts to come out and he says heroin, I think I literally got out of the car and walked away. It was just, it's too much, right? I write what you said. I don't, it's not anything that I had any kind of experience with, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I, I go into management mode, that's what I do, and I, I certainly did at that time too. But I think I, for me, I had to have a fresh encounter with the Lord where he's like, you have to depend on me. You know, John comes second, like I am first. Like John can't be all the things that you need him to be. You have to come to me for those things. So that, I mean, that was huge for me. And then watching John, like over the next three years as he's trying to, you know, stay sober, I saw breakthroughs in my own relationship with the Lord. But as a family, I mean, it was just every door kept getting closed. And we exhausted all of our contacts. I felt like I was pleading with different people to just give him a chance to help get us out of the situation we were in, and nothing was moving. It was so hard. So, so help me understand what you mean by, by pleading with people to get you out of the situation. Well, I mean, like John said, people didn't really know our full story, but they knew that we had two small kids and John was in and out of work. He had this big dream of music that had kind of just come crashing down. But I, I just wanted, I knew John was a hard worker and if he had the opportunity that he could really excel in a lot of different ways. And so, I mean, at, at the church that we were at, I would ask, like, is there anything around here that John can do? 
or just different contacts I had in the community. Like, can we find anything for John? Just get him started in something, and you'll you're gonna be glad that he's here, kind of a thing. And it just never worked out. And I I really feel like that was God protecting our family. Had we had more financial resources for John to blow through, it just it could have been it could have been fatal. I think almost certainly it would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So right. So I'm looking at all these. There are like some signs that are coming up that he might be using again, but he, like I said, he's just super good at manipulating me and knowing my weaknesses and things to say to get me to look the other way. But we would have the hard conversations. I would ask him if he was using and he would say no. I did a drug test one time. I didn't know enough to know that he could even like tamper with that. But I was trying to do all of the things that I needed to do to protect him and protect our family. We had, we had real hard conversations about friends in our lives that were walking through the same kind of thing. All the time, John was also in the same boat, but I had no idea. It looked so sincere in our intimate relationship. I just, you know, I, I would have never known if it wasn't for the bank statement in my face, undeniable fact this is money that's leaving. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known. He was just that good. Yeah, that's where the, the double life duality that I was living comes back. Just, and I think in those moments of, of you know, talking about like friends in our, in our life that are, we're going through something similar, like there was a, an element of sincerity in me, but still, you know, there's that other person that was using heroin every day. And, I guess it was a. It's like three years later. I've spiraled out of control. She's starting to ask questions. I, I, I'm tired at this point of of using. Like I'm ready for it to be done. I'm ready to be caught, but I don't have the willpower to stop for myself. Um, I just I, I couldn't. I'd I'd try. I'd get sick. I tried managing it with alcohol, which is a terrible idea. Uh, and everything came to a head on Father's Day weekend. Uh, I'd stayed out all night. Uh, I played a show with a band I was filling in with. Uh, stayed out all night until like six in the morning. Came home to in time to shower and then head to church for praise band practice to play that Sunday. High as a kite on heroin. And uh, when I saw her at church, uh, I could tell just by looking at her, she was, she was pissed. So I thought, like, this is it. I started to panic. Yeah, so I remember that. I remember being real, real mad with you. I don't remember why, but I, again, I, had, I, didn't, I wouldn't have thought that he had been using again, but I was real mad. But it was something about the way that you responded to my anger that sent up a red flag that was, like, alerting, like, okay, he's really panicking here something else is going on that he feels guilty about. And it just kind of stuck in my head, and it was something I chewed on over the next couple of days. And then I think it wasn't maybe like 48 hours later, that Monday night, the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night. And I, I mean, I'm a good sleeper. I fall asleep like two minutes into laying down, and I sleep until my alarm goes off. But the Lord woke me up that night at 2 o'clock in the morning, was just like, you need to go check your finances. 
So I really felt that pressing from the Lord and I responded. I just, I got out of bed, start pouring through our online statement and I'm seeing all of these things pop up. So I went and I got John out of bed and I'm asking him these hard questions like what's going on? What about this? What about this one? What about this one? And for a solid 30 minutes, he's denying, which is a long time in the middle of the night because I'm tired. Like I, I want more than anything for it to be true what he's saying and everything to be explained and just to go back to bed. But I just couldn't, I couldn't, it wasn't settled in my soul what he was saying. It couldn't be true. So I just waited it out. And then there was this moment, this pause, where I knew that what was going to come out of his mouth next was going to be devastating. And I just, I mean, I braced myself. And I, in my mind, I'm like, if I could just stay in this moment a little bit longer so I don't have to face what's coming next. Yeah. Um, yeah, I fought, fought telling it. I was, I, I didn't, it was that fear of, of losing her and the kids. Um, like, I realize that sounds weird. Like, here I am. I'm okay with doing heroin every day. But, but that fear of, like, being honest is what kept, and, or the fear of losing them and being honest is what kept me back from, from just telling her the truth. But I finally, like, there's no way out of it. Like, I tried telling her it was work expenses, everything, and it finally just broke down and, and told her some of the truth. Uh, you know, downplayed it again. But I, I told her. You know, I, I was back on it. And I switch right back into that management mode. I'm really good at that. I just start going through my list of like, all right, well, this is what we've got to do next. I stayed up all night trying to figure out like what our next steps were going to be. I called his parents, said we're coming down to you guys. I woke him up in the morning and said, you can pack your bags or I can pack them for you, but we're all going to South Georgia. I mean, and I, we have two small kids. They're coming with us. There's no, like, let me just send these kids off to someone else to, while I deal with my life. Like, we all had to do it together. Uh, so, yeah, we get to uh, my parents' house, and I, I think I went, went to sleep immediately for the next day or two. And uh, the, for, for about a week, we, uh, we had some tough conversations. Um, mostly I'm just a body in the room. Um, and... I think it was the Sunday, the, the next Sunday, uh, I remember waking up with just God again, telling me, tell the whole story, tell the whole story. And I wrestled with that for a little while and eventually went down and uh, talked to my dad and um, just told him the reality of, of my problem um, and how long I'd been using. And... And told him I was about to tell um, Mallory the whole truth. Well, mostly the whole truth, but she was going to have a better understanding of the bigger picture of my addiction. Yeah, so that's when it came out that John had this long history with drug use, that it wasn't these isolated events. Like, I always wanted to point back to, well, if the band thing hadn't worked out, then John would have been fine, or if he had been able to find a job, then this wouldn't have happened. But the reality of it was he had this demon, really, that was haunting him from an early age that, that joined us in our marriage as we, you know, started a life together. So that, I mean, that was a huge blow to me. And it really pushed us to the next level of when we're looking for care for John and what is 
detox and treatment look like, I knew at that point, like, this is way beyond anything that I can manage. Like, we need outside help. We need people that are really in this every day that know what to look for and know how to help John get the best uh, care and really point him back to the Lord. So we looked at a lot of different treatment facilities. It was really important to me that wherever John was, that they really um, were treating the mind, the body, and the spirit. You know, I wanted a place that was faith-based, but I wasn't willing to sacrifice the clinical side of it. Like, John needed all of those things. We had huge financial hurdles that were just so hard to look beyond. I remember talking to a bunch of places where it just felt impossible for us to even get there, for, for John to get the help that he needed. But we ended up at Good Landing, and I just, you know, the Lord was all over it. It felt like exactly the right place that we needed to be, and all of the pieces came together exactly the way they needed to. But I remember dropping John off and just how hard that was. Even driving to Good Landing that day, I felt like this resistance, like maybe this isn't that bad and maybe we can do it at home and maybe John doesn't have to go somewhere and all of those doubts creep in. But I felt just like this hard pressing of, no, this is, this is the next step and just take this one step at a time. That's that's where I I feel I feel bad about it because when I when I told her the whole truth I finally obeyed God and like let her the let her know the extent of of my problem you know it's it was a twenty year period of of upholding this double life of of sins hidden in the dark um, when I when I, I shed light on that the freedom I felt was just such a relief. Um, so I'm getting this like peaceful, like feeling of this, this relief and then dealing with the remorse of I've totally like, I've, I've, everything I've done to my family, I'm starting like to realize like how bad it is. Um, so I came into the program, like just done, ready to, to fully surrender and realize that, you know, when I, when I'm trying to do things, I, I can't. I, I burn it to the ground, and I was ready for for God to take control, and He He did, and He's continuing to do that. I remember early on uh, in a group meeting, a facilitator was talking about God's love and forgiveness for for us and for me, and you know it was something I, I had heard my whole life, but for whatever reason, in that moment, um, I was ready to for it to. Be, to download from my head into my heart and and fully feel God's love and his forgiveness for the years and years of of running from him and not obeying. I just learned to surrender. So I'd say like it was in the surrendering for John on his part that I could see. I mean, I was seeing it, um, seeing that change in him over, you know, the weeks and months that he was a part of Good Landing. And then on my side too, like surrendering this idea of what I thought my life was going to be like, what my family was going to be like, what the trajectory of our life was going to be, and just allowing God to work in both of our lives and just, I mean, just letting go of control and seeing him pull our family back together by, by honestly, by nothing that I was doing, just that surrender piece. But preparing for today, I did try to note down some things that 
I think were really instrumental in helping me in my recovery. And I wanted to be able to share that with you guys. So the first one is I set boundaries early on to protect me and my family. So I, I knew that day when I woke up John and said, pack your bags, like he had to go. He couldn't stay around us. He was sick and he needed help. And that was not something that I was prepared to um, take on on my own or allow my kids to witness. I didn't want them to see their dad that way. Um, the Lord really pressed in on me for John to be gone for six months. And that's something that we're still living out. We haven't reached the end of that. Um, and I think that was so important to have that number in mind and stick to it because there were days that John was doing really well and I could see hope and there was a piece of me that wanted to, um, to just relax into that and kind of let down my guard in a way that wouldn't have been helpful for him. He needed, he needs the six months to see the ups and downs of the early stages of recovery to feel all of that in a way where he doesn't have me looking on and scrutinizing every moment of it. Um, and I need, I needed that time too, to, um, to heal, to mourn the loss of what our marriage, what I thought our marriage was and to rebuild trust. And then making sure that whatever steps we make from this point on are only moving forward. I don't want to move backwards in any way into any kind of old job or old circumstance, you know, whatever that is. Like, I only want new things with John. The second thing is I really had to focus on my own recovery. And for me, that looked like seeking outside help, like a professional counselor. For other people, that might look like Naranon or Al-Anon or Celebrate Recovery or whatever. But for me, I had to have that time because, I mean, they were big blows to our marriage that I needed help thinking through and processing. Um, I had a lot of shame to walk through. I had a lot of, um, I had these heavy feelings of I should have known and what if I had done this and I could have prevented this and, you know, really just lies that the enemy uses to throw you off course. Um, so that was huge, having someone to even just help me to recognize and celebrate small successes in our journey that I couldn't see yet. Another thing was changing my environment. I know we talk about this for the addicts, like they've got to replace those um, friend structures, anyone that is um, enabling a lifestyle that isn't healthy. And I think about the friends that I had that really pulled in close to me during this time were just so key and instrumental in my recovery process. If I had wanted an out in my marriage, it would not have been hard to find friends that would have, would have told me to do that. I mean, for sure, like I would have had people that would have said, absolutely, he doesn't deserve you. You need better than this. Like he's only gonna relapse again. Like I could have found those voices and that could have um, really poisoned any hope we had for a future. I also had to get away from people that were more concerned with me living, fulfilling some kind of marriage vow. I don't really know how to say that, but when the conversation starts with, but you're not gonna get a divorce, are you? That's not helpful. <laughs> I needed people that were um, 
were there to see me recover and, and focus on um, allowing that process to unfold in a true and organic way. And there were gonna be really hard things to walk through. So anyway, so yeah, so that was so important and kind of pulling in close to like a few key people that were ultimately going to point me back to Jesus every step of the way was huge. And then the last thing I think is just surrendering and having patience with myself in the process. For the first like six weeks probably, I would have told you I don't see a way out of it. I couldn't, I could not see how to keep us together. And um, I just couldn't, I could not imagine a scenario where we were back and healthy and um, hopeful for a future for our family. But I knew that there was one step in front of me to do, and out of obedience, I could take that one step and trust that the process was going to unfold as it needed to. Yeah, so here we are, five and a half months later, and it's been really rough, but God has just been so faithful that even in those times where we could not see a way out, He just was moving and really knitting our family back together in little ways that I mean, became huge ways. That was powerful. So much good stuff came out there. And I just want to say thank you guys for telling your story, being willing to share it so candidly. I know yesterday that we were talking in my office, and I remember one of the pastors at the church where where we go in Newbridge, Dustin Pennington, we were having coffee one morning, and he told me the, the difference between repent repentance and regret and how in the beginning they look exactly alike. When somebody's caught, um, they feel like that they're, they've been exposed, that you'll hear a lot of the same language, whether somebody's serious or they're not serious. And I think as a, a wife, or I would say in general, I, I see so many wives and family members who who want to circumvent the process and say, I just want my you know, my, my husband fixed and we'll put him in treatment for a couple of weeks, but the kids need their dad. And so they'll compromise to be able to bring the person back in. I mean, I see this all the time, you know, it's just the one that calls They're in crisis mode. They've lost the ability to be able to speak into their loved one's life. They'll hand him over to us. And then two weeks later, they want to pick back up and, and run the show. And to know that you're wired that way, that naturally, you know, you kept talking about going into management mode and wanting to to control the situation, but finally getting to a place of saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do it right, we're going to put a gap in there to see if this is true, sincere change, you know, or is this, you know, just empty promises that are all going to lead right back to the active addiction, you know, within a couple of weeks or a few months. And I think that that takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of determination. And that's hard. Um, that's so hard to, to, to be able to stick that out for, for a significant period of time. And I think that's, that's a the big process that as other people listen to this podcast, you know, we want to, to, to not follow that out. So I think I've said enough about that. And I think you guys have demonstrated it to, to the, about as, as good as you can do that is, is watching a family walk this out. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, as Mallory, as you were talking about, 
not just like just, you know, we're always talking to the addict. Like, yes, you've got to change your friends. You know, you tell me who your friends are. I'll tell you who you are. Making sure that we stay around people who aren't going to drag us back out into active addiction, but it doesn't matter. I mean, that, that, it doesn't matter where you're at in life, but anybody who wants to go to the next level, like you've got to have people that are going to speak truth into your life. They're not going to try to tear it down or they're not going to um, speak from a place of pessimism or always being so negative that, that nothing can flourish and that you are very intentional about saying, I'm going to put people who are filled with faith that understand that I'm in a recovery process too, because everybody does get infected by this. You know, the way that we have to respond to somebody who is struggling with addiction and, and what that and how that changes the whole dynamics of the family. But you took those steps, and I would encourage anybody, you know, again, even if you're on the other side, you might not be the person who's in treatment, you're the loved one, but again, to surround yourself with people who are full of faith, because there's going to be a healing process to the entire family, to the entire family unit. And then, you know, as as I think about John and, you know, being a man, you know, not wanting to to give up control and, and, the, and the humility, you know, I talked about that on the front end. I mean, why the 80% fa- failure rate is because of pride. And, and normally in a situation like this, it is, you know what, you're not going to not let me have access to the money. You are not going to put all these guardrails in place. Like I've paid my dues. I went in, I did the little program, you know, now I'm coming back in to establish, you know, like we're, we're not going to drag this thing out, but you have the, the opposite. And I'm sure you have your struggles and, you know, y'all have y'all's conversations and all that kind of stuff. But what I see, you know, of walking so closely with you in this process is just a huge amount of humility to say that I realize this is a process and I actually invite those checks and balances into my life because I know that I need them. Like I realize that by being out there and being in active addiction and all of the lies and all the manipulation, that that changes the way that you negotiate life and you realize it's going to be a process and that you're willing to put yourself underneath the microscope so that you can reap a family and a wife that respects you and loves you and that you get to be the husband and the father and, and, the, and the person, the man that God created you to be. And I see that happening and you have so much integrity um, and you have a praying family. Um, you have you have a family that's contending for you in the spirit that is is not willing to sit by passively and watch their son or her husband to be taken out by by addiction. And, um, you know, I think that is, is, is such a, a big component of this and that, that we would pray for those who are struggling and in, 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 in the process and, um, and continue to pray. So it's just been awesome to, to hear your guys' story, um, to, to understand what recovery looks like, um, you, you know, in, in the midst of, of, um, of marriage. And I think so many spouses who, um, who are maybe on the front end of this, that, you know, it's like I say a lot of times, either you pay now or you pay later. And, and if you don't allow them to get the healing necessary, and it's just like, I get it, you know, that there needs to, money needs to be made and, you know, you want your husband in the house, but, you know, we look on the other side and how many marriages that don't make it where if you would, if, you, if somebody would have drawn a hard line in the sand on the front end, it's just the, you know, it's the parents that I see all the time. They got the, the 23-year-old who, you know, they thought was over at college, but in fact was blowing all their money on cocaine and not going to school. 
And then the parents, instead of putting them in treatment, you know, taking the bank account, taking the debit card, you know, instead say, you know what, let me get you a new apartment and a new truck or a new car or whatever. And, you know, and then you wonder why, you know, there's a 43-year-old drug addict living in your basement. And I'm not saying that's always the, the you know, that every time that you do it that way, that it's always going to produce the best result. But I do know that the opposite that whenever you do continue to enable and don't hold a hard line is why the recovery process so often, because us as, as family members and as professionals have to really hold that line and say, hey, we love you, but love is going, going to be a little tough during this season of your life, you know, so that you can can really beat this thing. Um, but again, just an incredible session, incredible episode here on The Comeback, and I look forward to working with you guys and having you back on again very soon. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.